Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Our reading of the law this morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is a little letter of Paul to the church in Thessalonica. We have two of them in our Bibles. We're going to look at the second one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Amen. Paul seems to give uncomfortable commands here. Notice at the beginning in verse 6 and at the end in verse 14, he both, both times he says, create distance between yourself and the disorderly brother. He says in verse 14, do not keep company. He says in verse 6, withdraw from him. This seems unnatural. This seems uncomfortable. Aren't we supposed to have a full fellowship in which we lean into our affection to one another? Paul here says, no, there should be some distance, but only under a certain set of parameters. First, that the person you are keeping your distance from is disorderly and disruptive. That is harming the fellowship through one specific act, not acting, through idleness, through a failure to work and to contribute to the welfare of the fellowship. He warns the church that they should be on guard against those whose mouths move too much and their hands too little. Who are not willing to serve, but are willing to talk. He says that this is a disruption and a disorder of the church, and one that they must be on guard against. And he said, we set you a different example. You guys remember that when Paul was with them in Thessalonica, he had a particular job. What was it? He was preaching and teaching. That is to say, he was generating lots of words. And Solomon, Solomon, we're going to get to Solomon. That's the sermon text, Proverbs. And Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, I set you an example. As the guy who produced the most words in your assembly, I also did my own work with my own hands. So follow my example. Let there not be too much talk and too little work. Let us work together. This is the command of Christ to the body of Christ, that we should work together and not just talk, but support one another in real deed. Let us do the work of the Lord now by praying, by humbling ourselves and calling upon him for our cares. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we turn to you again, confessing our sins, rejoicing in your grace, and now acknowledging our need. 
Our Father in heaven, we worship you now by acknowledging you are the giver of all good things and we are needy. We worship you by praying and saying, Father, we need you. For in and of ourselves, we are utterly insufficient and unable to meet our own needs. And so, Father, we ask you to care for us. We thank you for the work you have given us. We thank you for the labor you've entrusted to us. And pray for the strength, energy, and diligence to do it well to the glory of your name. We thank you for Khaled. And that our prayers for him are being answered. And that you are giving work to him. We thank you for the job offer before him. And for the other one that may be forthcoming. We pray, Father, that whichever offer it is, you would give him good work. Where he may use the gifts and skills you've given him to the blessing of the people of God and to the glory of your name. We pray that you would impress upon him this vision of his work. That you would humble him and bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That he would not only do good work and enjoy a good job, but that he would do that work for the sake of Christ. Working for the kingdom and not unto others. We thank you for the good work you have given to Tommy Mangan. And we do pray for him who has suffered extraordinarily for the good work he was doing. We pray for healing for him and patience as this healing is surely very slow. We pray for Emery as well that you would encourage and strengthen her heart day by day as she cares for him. That their marriage might be strengthened and deepened through these trials. That their trust in you, their time spent worshiping you might increase. Please provide for them abundantly according to their needs. I thank you that you have spared the life of my Uncle Dan. And pray that you would grant healing to his body. That the surgery here in a few minutes would go very well. And knit him back together by your touch. Father, revive him up that he might come forth from the hospital. We pray also for faith and give you thanks for the improvement that she is making and pray that you would have a healing hand upon her heart, mind, and body, restoring her as a whole person by your grace and goodness. We pray that you would meditate on your love and pay attention to your grace and find healing in the knowing of you and in the doing of your will. We pray that she would be able to go out of the ward this week and return to the home. We thank you that the parents could be there and that provision is made for this, but ask that you would sustain them as it leaves many questions. And as they look to you, O oh God, especially today, grant them rest and extraordinary peace, that by worshiping you, they might find refreshment and energy and wisdom to continue on with the work that is before them. We give you thanks for Jordan and the work that may be before him tomorrow. We thank you for the job interview and pray that you would bless him in it, that he would have a calm heart, a clear mind, and good words, that he would present himself well, and that he would have favor in the eyes of the employers, receiving good work for his hands, that he might labor well to you the glory of your name. We give you thanks for the work of your church here and abroad and throughout the nation. We give you thanks for our deacons and their meeting on Tuesday and pray your blessing upon them that they would do good work, that they would with wisdom and humility make good decisions, that they would bless one another with affection and friendship, building up a bond of peace among them, that they would labor out of the riches and joy of Jesus, being mindful of how much he has cared for them. We give you thanks, O oh God, for our sister church in, Ro in Providence, Rhode Island, and for the building that you have brought to their attention. We pray that you would bring now to their hands the funds that they need, that they might purchase this building, and that they might employ it to the worshiping of your name and to the meeting of many needs in that community. We pray that you would add this gift to them by your grace, knowing that your arm is not too short, your pocket not too shallow, that you are a God of abundance and goodness and grace. Bless them, we pray. We give you thanks for the Judicial Commission, for the work that they have already done. They have borne heavy burdens. 
And we pray that you would continue to strengthen them and build them up that they might bear them still more to the completing of their work. We pray for safe travels this week, for hearts of humility, minds of wisdom, to make good decisions. We pray, O God, that you would bless richly the labors of their hands and establish them to the building up of the church. We pray for those who have walked in sin to repent with humility, to confess those sins freely, to seek forgiveness abundantly. We pray for those who have been hurt and harmed, to know the healing of Jesus Christ, to know comfort and peace in His love and in His grace, to be surrounded by those who will walk patiently with them through this, and to build them up in the loving knowledge of Jesus. We pray for them to be empowered to grant forgiveness. We pray, O God, that through all these sorrows and tears, through these awful dark days, you might yet bring about the shining light of Christ's glory to the building up of your church, to the blessing of many people in the name of Jesus Christ, to the establishment of your kingdom in many hearts and many homes. Father, they are awful things we have heard and seen, but we pray. We pray that through Christ's work, they might yet work out for good. We pray this also for the Ukraine, that war would end, that peace would reign, that the refugees would find homes and indeed in time go home. We pray, O God, that you would establish the reign of the Prince of Peace in that land. That through their sufferings and through this fighting, the one who emerges victorious would be neither Russia nor Ukraine, but Christ and Christ alone. That the church would thrive in the aftermath of this awful experience. And that Christians would arise to love one another and to meet many needs and to preach Christ. We give you thanks for our brothers and sisters in Japan. We give you thanks that the services have been cleared to move there and pray that you would bless the many difficult details that they will go through to do this. We give you thanks for the two upcoming baptisms and pray for your blessing upon these saints as they receive this sacrament and are added to the number. We pray for the churches to rejoice in this. We give you thanks for the English classes and pray for them to bear abundant fruit. And that many of the Japanese people not only knowing English but knowing Christ and being able to read his word. We give you thanks for the renovations ongoing at Mukanoso and pray that they would be blessed richly that that church building might be further transformed to the worship of Christ and the building up of his people. We give you thanks for our presbytery, for a good meeting that has left so many of us weary, good work that has weakened us and left us tired. Father, thank you. Thank you for the students who were examined and sustained, who did good work and are showing themselves worthy of this work and this office. We give you thanks that you have stirred them up to desire the office of elder and to pursue this good thing. We pray that you would add to their number, to the filling of our pulpits and the blessing of our churches. And we pray that these men especially might continue in their studies and in their labor to show themselves workmen, readily approved and able to divide the word of truth. We pray for those churches of our presbytery seeking a pastor and pray that you would add to them this gift, that calls might soon go forth and be accepted. And that you would establish in every pulpit of this presbytery a preacher of the gospel. We pray for those struggling with tight finances. That you would bless them with the funds that they are seeking and they are needing. We pray for our presbytery itself. As it adjusts to the wonderful gift of having many more needs. We pray, Father, that we would, as a presbytery, be wise to manage our funds. We give you thanks for the youth retreats. We give you thanks for White Lake. We give you thanks for the young people themselves that are coming up behind us to take our place in these pulpits, to take our place in these pews, and we pray that you would fill them with faith in Jesus. We pray that you would fill them with the righteousness of Christ, to walk in His ways and to love His Word, and pray that you would establish them in our churches. We give you thanks for our elders and our deacons and pray that you would add to their number that you would strengthen the sessions and deacon boards of our presbytery, that they might be more of number 
but also, Father, greater in wisdom, humility, and grace, that they would thrive in the service of Christ to the blessing of your church. We pray, Father, for those who are struggling with health concerns. Be with Michelle Oliveri as she battles multiple myeloma. Be with Susan Leach as she has this fight as well. Bring healing to their bodies. Bring restoration and strength to them. Grant them the spirit of patience and of endurance under the trials and difficulties. Remember Joanne Martin. Give her relief from her pain. Build her up, bear her up, that she might endure well. We thank you for Bruce's testimony of the way in which she is enduring with her eyes fixed on Jesus. We give you thanks, our Father, that these many cares, some enormous and stretching across the globe, some tiny and taking up but a few hours of our time, are nevertheless all in your capable and loving hands. And as we surrender them to you now, Father, we pray that you would grant us that peace that comes from casting our cares upon you. That you would convince us now that you care for us and that we can trust you. We pray that you would open your word, that as it is read and preached, it might be read and preached with power and authority, with wisdom and with grace. And as it is heard, may it be heard in faith and obedience, loving the Christ we hear and see, worshiping him and longing to live a life that is pleasing to him. Grant now this grace to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read briefly from Acts chapter 4 to provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage, which is Proverbs chapter 6. So first, let's look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and then we'll go over and we'll look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' Amen and amen. Are any of you competitive? Some of us are competitive. Some of us are so competitive we avoid any form of competition, knowing that it brings out the most unsanctified side of our souls. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 16 that there is a very godly form of competition. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. This is what we see exemplified by the church in Acts chapter 4. That there was a holy and wholesome competition. Who can give away the most stuff? Who can be the most loving, the most generous? Of course, they weren't keeping score. They were simply noting that there was a free-flowing abundance of grace and of love which was exemplified by the phrase, they had everything in common. Notice the depth to which that commonality extended. We are very often, like shallow Americans, preoccupied with the commonality of goods and services and food. They met one another's material needs. That's true. But notice that originally in verse 32, Luke tells us that what they actually had in common that mattered most was that they were of one heart 
and one soul. That is to say that they had one central ambition. To glorify God by loving one another. The giving away of stuff was just the outworking. That was just the consequence. The thing that really mattered was that they wanted to glorify God by taking care of one another. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 6. Our sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 6. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Proverbs chapter 6, 1 through 11. Solomon has been introducing his son to wisdom and how to live wisely. In chapters 1 through 3, he gave him a sort of philosophical introduction. Solomon, here's what wisdom is. It's knowing God and his will for your life. If you know who God is, and if you know what God wants from you, you can live wisely. He says further, Solomon, the way you get this information is by listening. By listening to those who love God, and by listening to the word of God. And when you listen, you learn who God is, and you learn what he wants from you. Therefore, you are wise. He then says, thirdly, to his son, that if you listen to the word of God, learning who he is and what he wants, you will become like him. You will be made in his image and likeness, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, renewed in righteousness and holiness. Then Solomon, in chapters 3 through, really 6, we're coming to the end here, gives eight essential qualities that will show up in his son's life if he devotes himself to, to this listening to the word of God, this becoming wise through the fear of the Lord. And we're on to this next essential quality, generous living, sexual purity, careful, attentive listening, steady walking. And now we come in chapter six, willing work. Proverbs chapter six, verses one through 11. Here now, the word of the Lord. My son, if you become surety for a friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. Amen and amen. In the late 1960s, Eugene Peterson had been a pastor for a few years and was fed up with it. You see, one night he had a session meeting, and his daughter came to him and said, Daddy, will you read me a story? He said, Honey, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I have a meeting. She rolled her eyes sadly and said, Daddy, this is the 27th time. And he thought, that was an oddly specific hyperbole. And she very sadly brought him his calendar and proved that it was not hyperbole. It was specifically accurate. Brokenhearted and ashamed, he stalked down the street to the church building, stormed into the session meeting, and slapped his resignation down on the table. I'm done. I am tired of running this church. His elders, to their credit, very lovingly, very patiently heard his complaints and his concerns. And when he was done, responded with this extraordinary bit of wisdom. It sounds like you don't trust us. He said, what do you mean? And the elder said, 
Well, you should give up all that work you don't want to do and let us do it. We're the elders. Why don't you pray, preach, and listen to the people and we'll do everything else. And he was just cut through to the heart when he realized his busyness was not rooted in his love of the church or the kingdom of God. His overwhelming busyness was due to his pride. His conceited belief that he was irreplaceable. This is what Solomon has to teach us this morning from Proverbs chapter 6. The good news for us, the gospel truth for our busy hearts today, is that Jesus has already done the job. It is finished. Jesus has completed the task. He's accomplished the mission. He has done the job. So let's do our work together. So let us together work on this kingdom and church business. Look with me at the text for a little bit and let me build this argument from what Solomon says. Notice first in verse 1 that Solomon warns his son about a condition of overcommitment. He says, my son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger. By saying friend and stranger, Solomon calls his son's attention to the fact that it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's your dear friend whom you have great love and affection for. That doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if it's a stranger, somebody you have no idea who it is, but seems incredibly trustworthy. To put it in modern language, it doesn't matter if it's Tom Fisher or Bill Gates. It doesn't matter if it's someone you trust completely because he's your best friend or someone you trust completely because he seems like sickeningly rich. It doesn't matter if it's a friend or a stranger. You should not be in the business of becoming surety or shaking hands in the pledge. If you have the little footnote there, you'll see that surety might mean guarantee, collateral, or to strike hands, as in to make a commitment, a bargain. What Solomon has in mind here is the practice of guaranteeing someone else's loan. But of course, this is an agrarian society. It's not a cash-based loan from a bank. Rather, it's a pledge of crops or of animals. It's a promise of land or of work hours. In other words, Solomon warns his son, don't be in the habit of committing your livelihood to other people's work. You need to be careful committing your life into the care of other people in their lives. He warns him, don't overcommit. Whether for friends or for strangers, we too often as humans have a habit of saying, yes, I will help you. Yes, I will do that. I will be a surety for your work. I will make sure the work that you do gets done. I'll help you with it. I'll be there with you. Now, this seems like a good biblical approach, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like in the church fellowship, we ought to be the type of people who go along and encourage one another and build one another up? And yet, Solomon seems to warn us against the habit of taking on too many jobs, too many responsibilities, too fast. A few years ago, your session discovered this phenomenon among us. Because a few years ago, the three of us realized that every time you came to us with a question or an idea or a conversation, the first thing that came out of your mouth was, I know you're busy, but. And after months of hearing that sentence, I know you're busy, but. Tim, Tom, and I resolved that we needed to repent of something, pray about something, and find a way to communicate to you people, yes, we are busy. We're busy taking care of you. You are the job. This, this is the work to which we have been called. Friends, we need to beware being too busy. Saying yes to everything that comes along. We live in an America where this has reached idolatrous proportions. And the backlash is ravaging the American economy right now. Have you heard of the great resignation? 
Have you heard of all the Americans who are abandoning their jobs by the millions and you can't pay them enough to come back? They don't want money. They want a good night's sleep. Because we for far too long have drunk from the fire hose of American work ethic and our congregation is not immune. We hate quiet. We hate stillness. We want to run around pledging every moment available to us and say, I have something to do. I have another email. I have another job. I have another text. We have invented the technological platforms that have guaranteed the shackles and chains of our decisions. That we should be in pledge to everyone, everywhere, all the time, always available. Boundaries are a figment of the prior generation's imagination. And we are always on. Welcome to the new world. Where Solomon says to his son, Hey, don't give away what you are owed to your children, to your family. Don't give away the livelihood. Don't overcommit. And we constantly do this. Solomon warns his son further that it is not a small thing. It is not an insignificant or slight thing. Notice in verse 2, he says that if you have done this, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. That is caught or trapped. The, the possible verbal metaphor here is that of a fish with a hook. That when you spit out those words, yes, I will do that. Yes, I will take care of that. You have hooked your cheek with those words and you are being drawn now to the shore. You are now trapped and caught, snared and taken, hooked by what you have said, and you cannot get, we even have this metaphor in our English language, you cannot get off the hook. You have made a promise. You have made a pledge. You have said, yes, I will give you those crops. Yes, I will give you that oil and that wine. Yes, I will give you those hours of labor, that time and energy of attention. Yes, I will do it. And now you're ensnared. You're caught. You're trapped. In verse 5, he again compares it to the hand of the hunter that holds the gazelle. He compares it again the third time to the hand of the fowler that holds the bird. Solomon is saying to his son, you are caught in a trap when you overcommit yourself. In fact, these three have one other thing in common as a metaphor. What do fishermen do with fish? What do hunters do with gazelles? What do fowlers do with birds? They imprison them or eat them. And this is, my friends, what we have far too often been doing. We have not recognized that when we make commitment after commitment, we are building for ourselves a cage of commitments that enslave us and ensnare us. When we make sureties and pledges to every friend and stranger who comes along, we end up devoting ourselves to this destruction, a kind of living death, where all at once the health of the body evaporates, the clarity of the mind goes up in smoke, and the intensity of the heart to live and to live well vanishes. Some of you know of what I speak. You have embraced so many, so many works, so many commitments, that you are in the throes of depression and you have so much to do that you choose to do nothing. Many of you can look around the church and see, and the RPCNA is not immune. Pastors have done this. They have given away every time, every hour, every moment, every ounce of strength and energy for their work, and it seems so pious and it seems so wonderful. They're so devoted to the welfare of the church. And ten years later, they are broken and abandoning the ministry. Because they are exhausted. And we say, something is wrong. What went wrong? Solomon tells us what went wrong. We were not made to work ourselves into an early grave. And he warns us, if you make promises and pledges to everyone who asks... If you overcommit, you will indeed be hastening your demise. 
Solomon then says to his son in verses 3 and 4 that there is a solution to this problem. There is a way to get out of this early grave. There is a way to escape the shackles and chains that we have created with our own commitments. He says in verses 3 and 4, do this, my son, deliver yourself. He says in verse 5, deliver yourself. Here is your salvation. You have come into the hand of your friend. You are held captive by your promises. Here's how you get out of it. Verse 3, humble yourself and plead with your friend. Was there ever more anti-American advice ever given? Let me illustrate for you what he does not say. Buy a better calendar. Subscribe to the Internet's finest productivity blog posts. Get those podcasts from those workaholics who know how to max out the schedule and milk all the time. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say acquire new technology, improve your productivity and efficiency. He doesn't say that. He says, humble yourself. Stop expecting so much from yourself. Stop thinking that you are the answer to every problem, the savior of every soul. Humble yourself and go and plead with your friend. Let there be desperation and intensity to this humility. Verse 4, give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Be relentless and faithful to this commitment. Day and night, devote yourself to this humbling, this ruthless tearing out of the pride-filled ambition that makes you say yes to everything. Humble yourself and plead with your friend, acknowledging your limits, acknowledging your weakness, saying aloud, I can't do that. I can't deliver. I am not a God. Friends, This is the beating heart of this opening section. To humble ourselves and to know our humanity. Because ultimately, my friends, what is it that makes us shake hands with every stranger who asks for help? What is it that makes us pledge ourselves to every friend who comes to us? That makes us constantly overcommit to every question that comes? It is this desire for divinity. This incredible conceit and pride that says, I have the answers, I have the strength, I can do it, let me lean in and do it. And Solomon says, no, humble yourself. No, you're a human. You're meant to sleep. You're meant to keep Sabbath. You're meant to worship God and to enjoy Him. Humble yourself Know your limits and plead with your friends. Know that you are not a God. That you should work endlessly and tirelessly. Know that you are not a God. That you should say yes to everything that comes to you. You are not the hearer or answerer of prayer. Solomon, having given this counsel to his son, here's the way out. You humble yourself. You embrace your humanity. You acknowledge your limits. He then puts words in his son's mouth. This is what the son is to plead. See in verse 3? Plead with your friend. What should he plead? He should plead with his friend, go to the ant you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise which having no captain, overseer, and ruler, provides her supplies in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Solomon tells his son, rather than doing the work of your friend and neighbor, rather than enabling their laziness, train them, encourage them, disciple them in being diligent workers themselves. Show them the ant. Notice again the animal metaphor. Don't be the fish who bites every hook that comes gliding past in the water of this world. Don't be the gazelle who lays down into the hand of the hunter. Don't be the bird that passes into the hand of the fowler. No, be the student of an ant. How many of you have ants? Every house in Cambridge has an ant 
or 10,000. Every spring, it's not come yet, the ants arrive in our kitchen. And do you know what they do? They make a thin black line through our kitchen. They come in the spring and they do not leave until winter. And there is a perpetual thin black line. And you can get all the ant killer. And you know what you do? You spray it and all the ant lines go away. And what happens tomorrow? They're back. And you put out all the ant traps. And and they go into the ant traps. And they bring all the poison back. And it kills off the colony. And what happens? The next ant colony says, hey, that ant colony vacated the premises. Let's take over. The ants are relentless in their diligence. Have you ever seen that ant line where all the ants are going out, back and forth, back and forth, and it never stops? Throughout summer and throughout harvest, they diligently give themselves to the work that they are called to do. But you know what else is remarkable about these guys? Solomon says in verse 7, they have no captain, overseer, or ruler. What makes every individual ant content to carry the amount of food that he alone carries? His willingness to play a part in the bigger community. They have impeccable teamwork with no coercion. There's no king giving commands, there's no captain or leader giving directions. There's no overseer or ruler who's exerting authority and bringing about conformity. No, out of the generosity of their heart, out of the willingness of their love for the colony and the community, each individual ant takes his place in the march through the parsonage kitchen to gather up whatever it is they're finding. I have no idea because they've never seemed to bother our food supply. But they have found something and they go to it and they bring it back. And each individual ant marches in a row, sharing a load. It is the same pattern we saw in Acts chapter 4. Where they were of one heart and of one soul. There was a willingness to work. A willingness to give. Beloved, this is such a critical and important point for us. He does not say to his son, Get out to that man and strong arm him into the fields. Chase him out of his bed and whip him till he works. He says, show him an ant. Show him an ant farm and teach him. Teach him to be a willing worker who is willing to contribute to the welfare of the congregation, to the welfare of the church. Beloved, this is the spirit that we need to cultivate among us. That those of us who are desperately overworked in the care of this congregation need to repent of thinking too highly of ourselves and share our work with others. And that those who have stayed away from the work should look at the ant and say, if this colony is going to survive next winter, we're going to have to work together this summer and fall. We're going to have to love each other. There is nothing more tragic than a congregation that has decided that their pastor and elders will do the work except maybe a congregation in which the pastors and elders have decided they will do the work. When I first arrived in Enid, Oklahoma, the members of the church would come to me and they would say, I have this great idea, can we do this? And I would say, I don't know, why don't you try it, see what happens. And they would go do that. By the time I left Enid, Oklahoma, they would come to me and say, hey, I'm going to go do this, will you pray for me? And I was like, hey, they got the memo. This is Jesus' church, not mine. We have a responsibility, each one individually, to love one another in the love of Christ and to do our work generously and to encourage one another gently. Now I know calling each other sluggards doesn't sound very gentle, does it? And yet, I think as brave New Englanders, we can find a place for that kind of language in which we inspire one another to genuine work by saying, do not love idleness. Do not love indifference. Let us labor together in this work we call church. Solomon then tells his son that not only should he inspire the others who are around him, those friends and neighbors, rather than pledging himself to do their job for them, 
He should encourage them and inspire them to do their job. He should train them and teach them to do their job. Likewise, he notes, they should play an alarm clock. Verses 9 through 11, how long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. He says, go to your friends and your neighbors and warn them that they need to rise and do their work. By this, Solomon wisely points his son to the wisdom of this world that is embedded in the routine by God in a good creation. That is to say, Solomon here is not discouraging a good night's rest. He's discouraging a long day's nap. He is not discouraging the keeping of a Sabbath. He is discouraging the ignoring of the other half of the fourth commandment. And do all your work Monday through Saturday. Solomon is pointing out that God has embedded into this world a certain rhythm. When the sun is up, let's work. When the sun is down, let's sleep. When it's Monday through Saturday, let's work. When it's Sunday, let's rest. And when we embrace this rhythm embedded in the creation by a good creator, we find ourselves living wisely in the rhythms of the world and in the rhythms of human community in which we together can go to work, in which we together can go to sleep, in which we can play this role in a community that gives boundaries and bumpers to one another, that says, you're doing too much, back off and sleep. You're not doing enough. Come, rise from sleep and let us work together. And the community can ebb and flow in its rhythms and so bear one another's burdens. Otherwise, in verse 11, Solomon warns, Your poverty will come upon you like a prowler, your need like an armed man. He returns to his mortal metaphor. That the prowler, the thief, comes and poverty with all of its strength rips out of the home all that has been acquired. By laying down, by putting the hands at ease, by going inactive, the lazy one guts the work that has already been done. In like manner, the armed man comes upon him inescapably and overpowers him and takes away all that he has. Now, as we read through this and I discussed this and unpacked it for my children in family worship last night, we got to this point and I turned to my kids and I said, do you have any questions? And Lydia jumped in and said, yeah, where's Jesus? Anybody else got that question? What's this got to do with Jesus? I thought we were here to hear the gospel. Let's go back to that first word. Solomon is warning his son to not become surety, a pledge, a guarantee for anyone else's life. There are only two people in the Bible who are described as being a surety. The first is Judah. He has to go down to Egypt. You know why? They're starving. And if he doesn't go down to Egypt, they will die. He has to take Benjamin with him. Because the prince of Egypt, Joseph, though they don't know it yet, has said, I will see Benjamin and you will get food, no other deal. And and Jacob says, you cannot have Benjamin. If he dies, I die. And Judah says, no, father. Send Benjamin. I will be surety for him. If the prince of Egypt threatens Benjamin, then whatever punishment Benjamin faces, I will take on his behalf. Can you guess who the other man in Scripture is who's called a surety? His name is Jesus. Who said to his heavenly Father in glory, No, Father, my brothers, my sisters, whatever punishment they face for their lives misspent, for their work wasted, for their sins accumulated, I will take it. Do you know why you can't do the work of someone else? Because you're not Jesus. Because you're not God. He and He alone is surety. A guarantee of life in the midst of death. 
Why is it so important to Solomon that one of his eight essential qualities of wisdom is that his son would work diligently, faithfully, at his own job and no one else's? Why would he restrict himself to doing that work which God gave him and instead inspire and encourage others to do their jobs as well? Because this is what the gospel does when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to our jobs. You're not the savior of your work, of your employment, of your church, of your marriage, of your children. Whatever work God has given into your hands, he has not given it to you that you should become its savior, its Messiah. You're not Jesus. Jesus has done the job. Jesus has fulfilled the text. Jesus is the one in whom we work and the one for whom we work because Jesus has done the work for us. Beloved, let us be diligent workers knowing that Christ has done the job for us. I was struggling all week long. I confess this to Lydia this morning. I was struggling all week long. How do I preach, go to the ant you sluggard and learn how to work to a bunch of workaholics? Myself included. And then I heard it when I heard Jesus in the text. Isn't this rich and liberating? Friends, you don't have to put in 80 hours this week. Jesus has already done the job. You don't have to say yes to every question that comes. You don't have to do every job on your plate. Jesus has done the job. And so, my friends, let's work. But let's work together. Let's work together. Jesus has done the job. Let's work together. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this sweet word from Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that he is the great worker who has come into the world to bear the burdens, to carry the cross, to indeed take the punishment for our sin, to suffer the consequences of our crimes. And we thank you that because he has kept the law for us, and because he has borne the cross for us, and because he has laid in the grave for us, and because he has risen from the dead and ascended up into heaven forever for us, we are now free to obey only Him, and to have in this earthly life but one master, one head, one king, and it is the sweet Savior Jesus Christ whose yoke is easy and whose burdens are light. We give you thanks, O God, and pray that you would forgive us, that we have so often enthroned our own tyrannical pride over our schedule. Forgive us, that we have so often enslaved ourselves to the work that is around us and to the work ethic of this world. And instead, O oh God, give us the heart of Christ to trust Him and to work out of the riches of His righteousness and out of the joy of knowing Him. We give you thanks for these truths and pray that you would write them upon our hearts to the praise of your name. For in your name we pray. Amen.